Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And let's give this opening another shot because I just tried a really corny opening line and Robert's just look of quiet contempt across the table. No, no, I was, I was <laughs> laughing on the inside. You know? I'm sure you were. I wasn't even laughing at my own joke there. Um, and maybe this will be better. Okay, so we're going to start off today by doing a, a Charles Darwin deep cut. Uh, so Darwin, of course, published his great work on the origin of species in 1859. And of course, that was the book that explained his theory of the origin of species through evolution by natural selection. Then later, you got another one. That's The Descent of Man, 1871, which applied his theory to human evolution. And then a year after that, in 1872, he published The Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals, which is about the biological features of emotions like happiness, sadness, surprise, fear. Uh, for example, the relationship between what we feel and the physical expressions of those feelings in the body. Because I think this is one of those little mysteries that's so close and so invisible, we forget to ask why. But why is it that emotions, which are influenced by the content of our thoughts, like our beliefs and our knowledge, what we're aware of, they, why do they cause these powerful, automatic, even unconscious reactions from the muscles and glands throughout the body? Why does a feeling of moral disgust cause us to involuntarily turn our faces away and crinkle our noses up? Or why does a feeling of embarrassment or passion sometimes cause blood to rush to the cheeks and cause us to cover parts of our faces with our hands? Or why does an emotionally manipulative TV commercial about a sad dog trigger these unconscious movements in the eyebrows and the corners of the mouth or even engage the tear ducts if you're a real sap? <laughs> yes, a sad dog. The dog should be smiling and be happy, right? Well, there's always like I, – I, those are the things that are funny where like a, a really dramatically moving, you know, whole movie or book might not make me cry. But like mm -hmm. the, the sentimental commercial with like the – old dog buddy and the, you know, buying the Purina one for him or whatever, oh, that yeah. really, like, gets me going. Well, those have been like, finally sharpened by, um, uh, you know, multi-million dollar uh, uh, marketing campaigns to cut right to the heart. Yeah, they're emotional assassins. They mm -hmm. slip in in the night. They're ninja. So I, I think these relationships between thoughts and feelings and autonomically regulated involuntary activity of the skeletal muscles in the face and elsewhere in the body is truly a fascinating evolutionary mystery. Why do our bodies execute these movements when we feel these things? What biological purpose does it serve? And why do so many of these relationships between feelings and movements of the skeletal muscle, not all but a lot of them, why do they seem to transcend cultural, national, and linguistic barriers? Uh, so I, I think this whole area is a, is a totally interesting subject ripe for investigation, but today we wanted to focus on one specific question that arises from Darwin's work here. Uh, and to introduce this question, I want to read a passage with a few abridgments from the very end of the book where Darwin writes about some of the implications of his observations about emotions in, in humans and animals. Quote, The movements of expression in the face and body, whatever their origin may have been, 
are in themselves of much importance for our welfare. They serve as the first means of communication between the mother and her infant. She smiles approval and thus encourages her child on the right path or frowns disapproval. We readily perceive... <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, right but... away. What? Come on. The kid was just born? <laughs> just already just complete disapproval. Uh, maybe that's more important later Okay. On. <laughs> Uh, we readily perceive sympathy in others by their expression. Our sufferings are thus mitigated and our pleasures increased, and mutual good feeling is thus strengthened. The movements of expression give vividness and energy to our spoken word. They reveal the thoughts and intentions of others more truly than do words, which may be falsified. And then a little bit later, the free expression by outward signs of an emotion intensifies it. On the other hand, the repression, as far as this is possible, of all outward signs softens our emotions. He who gives way to violent gestures will increase his rage. He who does not control the signs of fear will experience fear in a greater degree. And he who remains passive when overwhelmed with grief loses his best chance of recovering elasticity of mind. These results follow partly from the intimate relation which exists between almost all the emotions and their outward manifestations, and partly from the direct influence of exertion on the heart and consequently on the brain. Even the simulation of an emotion tends to arouse it in our minds. Shakespeare, who from his wonderful knowledge of the human mind ought to be an excellent judge, says... Is it not monstrous that this player here, and this is a line from uh, Hamlet's soliloquy where he's watching the play and mm -hmm. he's watching the actors and he concludes in the end that the play's the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. But earlier in, in the soliloquy, he's uh, watching the actors act and, and Hamlet thinks, is it not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so to his own conceit that... From her working, all his visage wand, tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a broken voice, and his whole function suiting with forms to his conceit, and all for nothing. You know, this is interesting, uh, getting into to acting, because I feel like, maybe this is just me, but I feel like a lot of us, when we watch a well-acted scene, especially in a film, as opposed to a play where you can actually get so much closer uh, to the facial features of the actor. If, if the actor is, is truly talented, it's something to behold, watching them channel emotion, sometimes completely non-verbally. Mm -hmm. And I think it probably stands out for a couple of reasons. For, for starters, there are a lot of bad or just average performances in film where you don't see authentic emotion uh, channeled, even in like scenes of extreme emotion, which you're going to encounter more often in a film, uh, perhaps than in, in everyday life. But even in everyday life, when we are, when we're encountering someone displaying extreme emotion, we are likely a part of that scenario. Yeah. You know, unless we're just, we see something on the street. But even then, I mean, are we, if, unless you're a complete bystander and you're just completely locked out of it, you're probably going to feel something. That's where, a really good point. Yeah. yeah. Whereas if you watch, if you're watching just a really well acted scene in a film, like you, you have that permission of distance, right? Where you can stand back and say, hmm, look at what their their face is doing. Like I'm watching blood vessels move. I'm I'm seeing something in their eyes. Like I'm I'm seeing authentic emotion pour out of their face. Yeah, it's like a watching a film can, especially with great acting, can be like a a, a tasting course for human emotions. Whereas normally like you know, you'd be involved in the cooking or something. Or, right. You know, and so uh 
and of course it would just be rude to try to observe other people's emotions closely. <laughs> uh, so yeah, yeah, that's a really good point about acting. And it, it, it is uh, interesting. I mean, we often wonder this, right? Like um, when an actor convincingly portrays an emotion or character, does the actor actually feel that emotion? Mm-hmm. What are the important biological or psychological differences in the moment between an actor acting out an emotion with their face and their body and a person actually feeling that emotion. Like, what what are the differences you could name there? Yeah, I mean, and obviously there are different approaches to acting, different schools of acting. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, certainly a lot of the time when you're seeing somebody emote on the screen, they are they are drawing on real emotions, real experiences that are uh, in some way comparable to what their character is supposed to feel. Yeah, and I think that's why a lot of times actors actually need time to, say, get into and out of character. You know, they can't turn it off and on in an instant. I mean, I guess mm-hmm. maybe some can, but a lot can't. They need they need a few moments to sort of gather themselves to get in and then gather themselves once they get out. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so anyway, Darwin is suggesting here that the bodily manifestations of emotion, including the facial expressions, are not just a consequence of the emotions we feel, though they are that, of course. Uh, and the fact that we have these outward uh, signs of the emotions we feel, of course, is useful for communicating our emotional states to others. And this could be one very important biological role that these expressions play. But he says they also are involved in the regulation and maintenance of the emotions themselves. So a smile isn't just a consequence of feeling joy. The smile contributes to and sustains and modulates the feeling of joy. The tightened lip corner isn't just a result of our feeling of contempt, but it in some way makes us feel contempt. So it's almost like they're two dogs chained to each other. And if one moves, uh, the other one cannot help but be moved as well. Right. Well, I mean, according to, to Darwin's view here, yeah. So th- his idea is that the, the the bodily expressions don't just follow from emotional states. They, they, in part, are the emotional states. They contribute to and control the emotional states. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into this some more. But I think that this is something that a lot of us can can point to times in our life where this either definitely feels true or other times where it definitely doesn't feel true. Mm-hmm. Like, um, in, uh, for instance, I, I go to I go to yoga a lot. I I, I really uh, enjoy and I think benefit uh, physically and mentally from a yoga practice. And there are times where you're um, you're in a pose, and a teacher may tell everybody, "Don't re- you know? Don't forget to smile, smile," and then that'll change your sort of emotional. Uh, uh, participation with the the pose. Mm-hmm. And in those situations, it, it it does feel sometimes like it helps. On the other hand, I've had teachers who say that they, they've stopped saying that because sometimes people in the class, uh, you know, have bad experience with being told to smile. I mean, that's oh, become right. a, very much a... Like a getting harassed on the street yeah, or something. Yeah, a cliche of misogynistic um, um, uh, behavior, telling someone they should smile more, telling someone they should smile. And it can be that alone, yeah, can feel no matter, you know, you know, you know what, what your, your, your gender uh, happens to be. It's like being told to smile as if uh, that is just going to fix your problems. That's going to totally change your, your, your mood. It, it can feel insulting, right? Like surely my emotional state depends on more than just what my face is doing. And, and ultimately, I think we all can agree it does. Being told to smile and then smiling does not fix whatever caused you to frown to begin with. And then that's not getting into the case, uh, you know, the situation that we do need to frown. We do need to have like the full uh, spectrum of emotions. 
Right. That's certainly right, even if Darwin's correct. Like, mm-hmm. even if Darwin is right that the smile itself can give you a, some kind of feedback that in turn actually increases the positivity of your emotional state, the smile can make you happier. I mean, that that doesn't necessarily mean it's good for other, like, exogenous forces to try to coerce smiling right. on you, to tell you you should be smiling, which I think can probably lead to all kinds of other emotions that could negate whatever positivity comes from the, the, the muscle movements that might be making you happier. Right. So as we're talking, you know, we're, we're not talking just about smiles, but mm-hmm. smiles do come up a lot in, in, in the discussion here. So uh, I, I thought it would be helpful to take a moment to just talk about what a smile is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our smile is a bit different uh, from uh, the, you know, the, the smile that we see expressed by our, our great ape brethren, uh, where it is essentially a fear grin. Uh, you know, it's it's often flashed when an individual is trapped or threatened. It's a show of submission to more dominant members of the group. And, uh, you know, it's, it is then an admission of fear and a signal, uh, though an, a signal that doesn't just stand on its own. It's like part of a larger bodily signal that is expressed uh, to, as if to say, you know, I am not hostile. I yeah. am not a threat. And uh, I was reading a little bit about this. Uh, neuroscientist um, uh, Michael Graziano, who we've discussed on the show before, uh, mm-hmm. He has a wonderful Eon Magazine article that discusses this topic, and he he points out a number of the things we've talked about uh, here already. He also points out, you know, that that even uh, you know with humans, people sometimes in subservient positions will uh, will smile a lot. You know, there's sort of the um, uh, you know the the, the boot kick, uh, licking smile that we still kind of yeah. identify. The um, idea of the obsequious smile. Yeah. And uh, and so that in that it would seem that there are certain aspects of the the great ape smile that haven't quite left us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he points as well to Shakespeare, a line from Troilus and Cressida: uh, "Quote, they send their smiles before them to Achilles," <laughs> uh, which which I think is uh, is rather nice. So the human smile seems to have definitely emerged out of this same sort of thing. I mean, you know, we are we are primates after all. And of course, even though there, uh, you know, a smile is a smile is a smile, there are some cultural differences in the way smiles are perceived mm-hmm. uh, from one culture to another. Um, we mentioned, uh, or Darwin mentioned, uh, babies earlier, and, and certainly human newborns flash reflex smiles, but then social smiles come a little later, six to twelve weeks generally. Um, yeah, anyway, in this uh, Ian article, uh, Graziano points out that you know most. Uh, commentators agree that primate smiles are very old, and some think that it might have evolved out of an older threatening display. But he thinks that if we focus too much on the teeth, we miss something else. Again, that full body display that is evident. Right. It involves multiple regions of muscles in the face. Yeah. Um, I think uh, stuff around the the cheeks and the sides of the mouth, but also the eyes, right? Yeah, yeah. And even, yeah, just like what the the, the full body is doing and the full, uh, you know, communication array that is the face and the head. Uh, so what he proposes ultimately is that we're we're talk what we're talking about here is a smile that's kind of a halfway point between not reacting to a display of dominance and fully reacting to it, hmm. um, which which is which is interesting. It's almost like um, uh, you know these these creatures learning to lie to each other to deceive <laughs> each other. You know, um, here's a quote from it where he's talking about like monkey A and monkey B. You know, hypothetically interacting. Quote, monkey B can learn a lot by watching the reaction of monkey A. If monkey A makes a full-blown protective response, cringe and all, it's a pretty good sign that monkey A is frightened. He's uneasy. His personal space is revved up and expanded. He must view monkey B as a threat, a social superior. 
On the other hand, if monkey A reveals only a subtle response, perhaps squinting and slightly pulling back his head, it's a good sign that monkey A is not so frightened. He does not consider monkey B to be a social superior or a threat. So the social signal evolves from here, and he drives home that, quote, the primary evolutionary pressure is on the receiver of the signal, not the sender. The story is about how we came to react to smiles. Yeah, that's interesting. But it also raises all these other questions about, so if we consider the evolution of the smile as uh, having something to do with social signaling, it Mm -hmm. relates to the social relationships between animals that live in groups and interact with each other. Why is it that in, uh, in our lives, at least, I would say the smile is very divorced from that original context where you smile by yourself all the time. Yeah. You, you be completely alone and something makes you happy and you find yourself beaming. Yeah, th- this is true. Um, now we've discussed before, though, how we might not laugh, though. We might smile but not laugh or at least— That's a good point. The yeah. laughter might be—and uh, the smile might be more pronounced if there's someone else around, uh, particularly, you know, someone we know. Yeah, we were just talking about this before we started recording, actually, how— uh, you know, we we watch the the Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode and we laugh if somebody else is in mm-hmm. the room. It's still funny if nobody else is there, but you just don't laugh out loud. Yeah, I've um, – hey, I'm trying to think of, of a time if I, if I ever watched something and just really laughed out loud by myself at how funny it is. Like, uh, yeah, it, nothing comes to mind. It, it, and in fact, I think I would feel weird if I did. I would feel like um, – Sam Neill's character at the end of In the Mouth of Badness, where he's uh, in the movie theater. Sometimes barbarian movies do it for me. I think I was laughing pretty loud by myself when I was watching your Hunter from the Future. <laughs> no, maybe you were just beside yourself with laughter, and therefore, yeah. you know, you have, <laughs> you, you know, yourself uh, to uh, to communicate to. Um, so, so basically, uh, Graziano points out, you know, that from here it would have been an evolutionary arms race. Um, and, and this is a wonderful article, by the way. It's titled The First Smile. Um, it's available, uh, you know, uh, at EN Magazine. And uh, he gets into laughter as well. But uh, here's how he sums everything up. Quote, evolution favors animals that can read and react to those signs. And it favors animals that can manipulate those signs to influence whoever is watching. We have stumbled on the defining ambiguity of human emotional life. We are always caught between authenticity and fakery, always floating in the gray area between involuntary outburst and expedient pretense. That's well put. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, I think it's helpful to think about the complexity of the smile, the mix of authenticity and fakery. Um, you know, we've discussed, I think we've discussed fake smiles on the show before about how, you know, there's this lack of micro expressive detail in a fake smile that you can pick up on. Um, but that to like truly fake a smile, you do have to summon some of the energy of the smile, you know? Uh-huh. Um, yeah. It, it, anyway, it gets, it, it gets very complicated and especially in the human, uh, scenario to, to, to define exactly what a smile is and the degrees of smiling. Well, here's maybe a good question. Are all smiles on command fake smiles mm-hmm. or are there, are there cases where you smile on command and not because, you know, you suddenly are overwhelmed by a feeling of positivity and joy and happiness. You, you know, you just smile because you need to, but it's not fake. Hmm. Yeah, this is a good question. It's it's it, it kind of goes in with laughter as well, or at least kind of like the mild laughter. I, I think of like interactions with people 
uh, you know, be, be it at work or, you know, strangers at a store, you know, the various social interactions that fill our lives. And I'll catch myself smiling. I'll catch myself, you know, laughing a little bit, even if there's not a joke, which seems strange. Like maybe I'm, it makes me kind of feel like I'm the joker or something. Um, the man who laughs. Yeah. Yeah. Not in the good way, not in the Steve Miller way, <laughs> uh, but, you know, in the, the Batman way. Um, and yeah, and you start teasing it apart and you start asking yourself, well, was this authentic? Was this inauthentic? Or was it, or is it like Graziano says, is it somewhere in between? Like for, for instance, um, I think one person wrote into us once and accused one or both of us of fake laughing at each other's jokes. Do you remember this? I don't remember this. And, uh, um, yeah, it was a while back, and I think only it was only one person that ever ever wrote in about it. And uh, it just made me stop and think, though, because I'm like, well, what we do here is is kind of a performance, you know? We're not reading from a script. We're having an authentic conversation, but it's a conversation knowing that someone else is listening to it. Uh-huh. And, like, we, we do make each other laugh, yeah. but maybe we do lean into it a little bit. I don't know. It, it Like, it basically comes down to exactly what Graziano said, that it's it's not just fakery and authenticity, but there's this, there's this huge area in between, and we may not even be aware of, of where we are on that spectrum in a given moment. Okay, I think we got to take a break, but we'll be right back with more. All right, we're back. Okay, so we've been discussing facial expressions, emotions, uh, uh, Darwin's writing on the relationship between facial expressions and emotions, or not just facial expressions, I mean all all kinds of body expressions and physical manifestations and emotions. Um, And so this leads up to something that we're going to be talking about for the rest of today's episode, which has come to be known as the facial feedback hypothesis. Uh, Now, I guess to have a starting place, we should talk about what some of the acceptable emotions for discussions are, because obviously there are lots of complex emotions that might be, you know, little shadings of other more basic emotions or combinations of feelings. Uh, Commonly acknowledged basic emotions in psychology as categorized by the American psychologist Paul Ekman. Uh, Let's hear him. How about happiness? Okay. Sadness. Mm -hmm. Surprise. Mm-hmm. disgust, anger, and fear. There you got your big six. Now, other psychologists have offered slightly different lists, but I think this seems to be like a good starting place. These are like six widely acknowledged basic emotions, uh, setting aside for a second that, you know, different theories of what emotions actually are, which we'll come back to later in the episode. They're, they're also like the constructionist ideas of emotions, which says it's more like there's some kind of uh, universal slider underneath all these, and these are like categories that we apply to where that slider is. But for now, we're going to work with those kind of six emotions. And so put succinctly, the facial feedback hypothesis is the idea that, quote, an individual's experience of emotion is influenced by feedback from their facial movements. Now, there are tons of different versions of this hypothesis that have been articulated and tested over the years. We'll we'll get more into those differences later on. Uh, We know Darwin proposed something like this in the 1870s, and it's been advocated by other important figures in intellectual history. The seminal American psychologist, William James, argued uh, in his uh, 1890 work on on psychology that, at, at least for the more basic or coarser emotions, Emotions, in a way, simply are identical with the sensation of their physical manifestations in the body. Quote, If we fancy some strong emotion and then try to abstract from our consciousness of it 
all the feelings of its bodily symptoms, we find we have nothing left behind, no mind stuff out of which the emotion can be constituted, and that a cold and neutral state of intellectual perception is all that remains. So th this is a strange idea, but this did hold some sway for a long time. Uh, it's the idea that the feeling of an emotion is the feeling of changes happening in the body, including but not limited to the skeletal muscle. And this would center largely but not entirely on expressions that happen automatically in the facial muscles, but also all throughout the body. Well, you know, this does remind me that, you know, when, when one is smiling intensely, mm -hmm. um, organically, uh, you know, you're not faking it at all, but like something is making you really smile and perhaps uh, laugh really hard as well, mm -hmm. there is a feeling of possession about it. Yeah. Uh, where you could imagine it's like this, the physical, um, uh, you know, symptoms are actually kind of like crunching your brain into this, uh, this pattern of thinking. Uh -huh. Like, like you are, you are happy now. You are laughing now. Do you ever get the feeling of like feeling happiness in the face in the way that if the emotion has a location, it kind of feels like it's somewhere behind the face and kind of, or like it's a claw, like it's yeah. a, like a, like a claw clamped over the face, like a xenomorph <laughs> claw, uh, you know, an alien. And, it, and then you get to the point where your face is hurting a little bit. Like yeah. that is always a weird sensation where you're like, I'm, I'm so happy and overcome by joy and it's physically hurting me. I wish it would stop. Well, on the other hand, I mean, other emotions, I think we often, do you not, at least I do, associate fear with a feeling in the stomach and the gut? Uh, do you not associate uh, sadness with kind of feelings in like the throat and the temples and behind the face also? Yeah, yeah. I mean, with 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 that being, you know, it's, it's often like there's a like a nasal activation, you mm -hmm. know. We often don't want to think about that when we, we think about, you know, weeping tears of joy. But it's often not just tears of joy. It's snot of joy or <laughs> snot of sadness, but it's not nearly as poetic. But uh, but, but that's how it works. Uh, and in terms of like fear and, you know, anxiety, uh, I often think of it as more like a, like a claw. Again, I guess it's claws. Like I can't get past the claws, but it's more, <laughs> it is more of an internal claw clutching, not the face, but the heart. Uh-huh. I had no idea your psychic universe was all claws. Yeah. I mean, that's, I guess that's how I view the outside world. It's just a series of claws, uh, <laughs> trying to, um, uh, get to the, the heart of me. Uh, so William James also, like Darwin, addressed the subject of acting. Uh, so to, to defend this idea, he brings up a hypothetical objection to his argument. It goes something like this. So, so okay, so William James, you say that bodily expressions uh, of, an, of an emotion are identical to the feeling of the emotion. Wouldn't it follow then that an actor faking an emotion is exactly the same as somebody really feeling it? And, uh, and the way James phrases this is that any voluntary cold-blooded arousal of the so-called manifestations of a special emotion ought to give us the emotion itself. Uh, and James answers this objection by saying, first of all, you can't really test this because a lot of the bodily manifestations of emotions are in organs that we can't voluntarily control, things in the you know, in the gut, in the autonomic nervous system. He gives the example of tears. Most mm -hmm. people can't cry on command. Thus, they can't actually perform a voluntary cold-blooded arousal of the physical manifestations in the body. But there are some cases where we can control those manifestations. And in these cases, James says, 
the problem with the objection is that it just assumes it's obviously wrong that cold-blooded arousal of the manifestations gives us the emotion itself. He does not concede that this is an absurdity. Instead, he writes, quote, Everyone knows how panic is increased by flight and how giving way to the symptoms of grief or anger increases those passions themselves. Each fit of sobbing makes the sorrow more acute and calls forth another fit stronger still, until at last repose only ensues with lassitude and with the apparent exhaustion of the machinery. In rage, it is notorious how we work ourselves up to a climax by repeated outbreaks of expression— refuse to express a passion, and it dies. This is a famous quote here. Mm -hmm. uh, count ten before venting your anger, and its occasion seems ridiculous. Whistling to keep up courage is no mere figure of speech. On the other hand, sit all day in a moping posture, sigh and reply to everything with a dismal voice, and your melancholy lingers. There's no more valuable precept in moral education than this, as all who have experience know. If we wish to conquer undesirable emotional tendencies in ourselves, we must assiduously, and in the first instance cold-bloodedly, go through the outward movements of these contrary dispositions which we prefer to cultivate. So I, this is sort of the origin of fake it till you make it, right? Yeah, yeah. Or, um, yeah, or telling people to smile and they'll be happier too. I mean, it's... <laughs> Uh, I, yeah, this this I mean he he puts it so well, and my my response is both yes and no. Like you know this this feels absolutely true, but also like you know so many different objections pop up as well. Uh huh. I mean, for starters, just the idea of like refuse to express a passion and it dies. Mm -hmm. I mean that runs counter to a lot of at least um, you know certainly to the advice that is often given about passions and how we should not bury them inside of us because it won't die yeah. if it is buried inside us, that it will find a way out and it might not find its way out at a, in, a, in a way or at least at a time that is, uh, that, 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 that is beneficial. Well, I, I am also of two minds about mm -hmm. this. Um, and the idea of, yeah, refuse to express a, uh, express a passion and it dies. Um, I think I've talked on the podcast before about how I'm often skeptical of the benefits of what people call venting. Yeah. Though at the same time, I don't think it's good to, you know, have strong feelings about something and have nobody to talk to them about. You know, when, mm -hmm. when you can't talk about something that is psychologically stressful, it's a burden on you. And yeah. so, like, on one hand, you do need to be able to talk about things. But it, there's this thing people call venting, which is like, something is bothering them and they just like continually express their frustration in a kind of repetitive pattern about it. Mm -hmm. I tend to notice throughout my life that this in myself and in others, this doesn't actually make you feel better. The, the venting process, I think most of the time just makes you matter and matter. You work yourself up into a state where the problem assumes a larger posture than it did to begin with. And you're talking about like speaking aloud, that yeah. sort of venting, because it seems like that sort of, of venting has a very, it has a lot in common with uh, the, the things that go on inside the mind and the default mode network as yeah. we ruminate over something, some worry we 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 kind of rehearse for disasters, uh, for example, or we um, uh, we essentially fantasize about terrible things occurring, and um, you know it's, it's it's kind of the same practice, right? I mean, it's uh, uh, you know it's it's filling your mind uh, uh, with um, uh, some sort of negative outcome, uh, be be it you know you yelling at somebody or um, you know or, or bad things happening to you, kind of rehearsals for disaster. <laughs> 
Yeah, the psychological process of rumination where you, where you just like rehearse the worst possible scenarios in your mind over and over again mm-hmm. is terrible. But then the idea here, though, is there could be like a feedback loop if you're actually if – if you're expressing it bodily or facially. Yeah. Then it's just going to potentially make things worse. Yeah. Um, and, and I do think to some extent that's true. So, yeah, obviously we're dealing with something that's very complicated and that's not a surprise because it involves emotions. Mm-hmm. I think emotions are uh, – I mean, we'll go ahead and say today, emotions are one of the most difficult things to study scientifically, I think. Um, and And so studies about them are often plagued with – problems of inconsistency in how the emotions are characterized, how they're measured, mm-hmm. how exactly do you quantify emotional states. It, it's one of the most difficult problems in all of science, I think. Yeah, how do you even agree on the, the basic terminology? And then if you end up creating something that seems like a useful explanation, is it ultimately just kind of a, you know, a system of metaphors to try and make sense of this thing. You know, it's kind of like the movie, the Pixar movie, Inside Out. Oh, I hadn't seen it. A wonderful movie about, about emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but ultimately, like, there are not, uh, you know, a, a series of individuals inside of your head arguing with each other and going on adventures. Uh, so, so, you know, you, you, you worry, too, about, like, to what extent you end up, like, going too far in one of these directions and, and, and really trying to... Uh, you know, apply language to the, the, the unlanguaged complexity of the mind. Uh-huh. But obviously, then again, emotions are one of the most important features of our entire lives. And oh, yeah. so psychology should be taking a crack at understanding them. And so I guess that brings us back to, the, back to this question of the, the facial feedback hypothesis. If it's true that movements of the facial muscles or facial expressions do contribute to our underlying emotional states. They're, they don't just follow from them, but they feed back into them and in some way control them. Is there evidence for that? Is there evidence that that's true? And I guess that's what we should discuss next. So one thing we absolutely do not lack for is studies on this subject. <laughs> uh, the facial feedback hypothesis is huge, and it's a very complicated subject with a massive and conflicting research history. There's no way to discuss all these studies, but in a minute we will be looking at a recent meta-analysis paper that uh, sort of gives an overview of these findings. Now, one thing is like problems with methodology we were just alluding to and how you study things like the relationship between facial expressions and emotions. Of course, you can just ask people to smile or frown or do things with their face and then ask them how they feel. But these kinds of experiments would have some obvious limitations, right? Like if people are aware of being asked to smile, uh, this knowledge could change how they report their feelings and it could bias the results. You could have acquiescence bias where, you know, uh, people in an experiment tend to just sort of try to figure out what the experimenters want and and give them those types of results. Mm -hmm. Or uh, more generally, what are referred to uh, as demand characteristics where where things emerge in the research environment that would not emerge naturally. So different tests devised over the years have tried to get around this a number of ways, trying to like contort the facial muscles and see if that does something to emotional states without just saying, hey, you know, could you please frown for a minute and then we're going to ask you to do a questionnaire. Uh, so, like, one type of thing is the uh, the pin-in-the-mouth study. Oh, yes. So here's one where you put a pin either between your lips or you put a pin between your teeth. When you put a pin between your lips, it just happens to form your face into a frown. When you put a pin between your teeth, it happens to induce the same muscles that you would use in a smile. 
Uh, so that's been used in a number of studies. Another thing is like asking participants to say a lot of certain vowels. Uh, for example, ah sounds incidentally produce smile posture and oo sounds incidentally produce frown posture. And some research has found, for example, that ah sounds make people self-report more happy or pleasant feelings. Uh, and I've even seen this connected to the prevalence of ah sounds in religious chants. I thought that's kind of an interesting uh, hmm. idea there. Like, like hallelujah kind well, of thing? Well, all kinds of, I mean, th that ah sounds are more prevalent around the world in religious chants than ooh sounds, and this could be because they induce more pleasant mental states. Hmm. Now, where does ohm fall then? I guess, <laughs> well, hopefully ohm would be um, between the two, right? Yeah, maybe. But out of this this huge history of, of all these different studies, uh, just this year, we got this big meta-analysis pulled together, uh, tabulating 138 different studies on the effect. It was by Nicholas A. Coles, Jeff T. Larson, and Heather C. Lynch, published in Psychological Bulletin in 2019. And so, okay, you might think that given that many studies, 138 studies, now we should have a really solid body of evidence converging on a clear consensus answer uh, and in one broad sense, that's true, and in many more specific senses, it's not true. To quote the authors here, Unfortunately, more than a century's worth of research has not yet clarified whether facial feedback effects are reliable. For example, researchers have produced a variety of theoretical disagreements about when facial feedback effects should emerge, but it remains unclear which, if any of these theories, are correct. Furthermore, 17 labs recently found that even the most seminal demonstration of facial feedback effects is not clearly replicable. Mm. Uh, so, and this was a big problem. So, like one of the biggest studies, it was in it was a pin in the mouth study uh, that found that you know putting a pin between the teeth made people report more happy emotions than putting it between the lips. Uh, that that was big. But then just recently, a bunch of labs tried to replicate it and they couldn't. So here, here's this big question, what all these studies add up to? So here's where this new meta-analysis comes in. Quote, amid this uncertainty, we provide a narrative review of research on the facial feedback hypothesis and a meta-analysis of all available experimental evidence. So they're pulling all the studies together and trying to see if they can crunch the numbers and figure out what is shown overall. So I think maybe we should take another break, and then when we come back, we can get into the results of this study. All right, we're back. So, yeah, we're looking at a meta-analysis of uh, all of these uh, these different studies about facial feedback hypothesis. And uh, hopefully, like, some sense will emerge from it all, right? <laughs> we'll have some, 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 some general, um, uh, you know, ideas that we can draw from it, right? Uh, we will get some. We, there are other things that are left unanswered. So one of the things is that we, we alluded to all these different problems in how you study something like the facial feedback hypothesis. Uh, like the authors identify four major theoretical disagreements in how people even approach the subject to begin with. I'll try to simplify them as briefly as I can. One is modulation versus initiation, okay? So one, one view says that Emotions are maintained and modulated by body expression. So you're genuinely happy, you're feeling happy, and that makes you smile. And then the smile can maintain and intensify the happiness, or suppressing the smile can put a damper on the happiness. This is the modulation hypothesis. Meanwhile, the other view would say that uh, at least some emotions can be created out of nothing with facial feedback alone. So maybe you're feeling neutral but you make yourself frown for five minutes and you actually end up feeling sad. This is the initiation hypothesis. Hmm. 
Though the authors note something interesting here that maybe we wouldn't have thought about otherwise. Uh, they, they know that this distinction assumes that emotional experiences have a beginning and an ending, that they are discrete rather than continuous and always in flux. Like, if you feel happy, can you pinpoint the moment when you started feeling happy? And was there no happiness before? Or was it just something that got turned up in amplitude but was there before? Uh, th this is an interesting question. Like, are emotions discrete things that can begin and end, or are they part of a continuous media that's always in flux with maybe, uh, and of course, if they are, there's maybe no difference between initiation and modulation. Yeah, it makes me think, is, is like a flow state a non-emotional state? Hmm. I've never heard it put like that. I'd have to think about that. Because generally when I think if, about being in a flow state, I think about it being happiness because like it's, you're content, you're not you know, you're totally wrapped up in the task at hand and you're not, uh, you know, thinking about anything else. But then again, is it is it really happiness or is it like just sort of removal from the, uh, you know, the wheel of emotions to uh -huh. some extent? Uh, disengaging from the default mode network, yeah. that's for sure. Uh, yeah, and the default mode network sometimes just seems like kind of a roulette wheel of emotions, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's just spin it and let's just see what, what, the, what the universe <laughs> has for me right now. Am I going to be happy in the next minute or sad? It's like you – or I often feel like I just – I have no idea. And for me, it's like which of your failures would you like to contemplate? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, default mode. Okay, so next, uh, you've got discrete versus dimensional emotional experience. So are happiness, anger, sadness, all that, are they discrete categories? Do these basic emotions exist as sort of separate programs within the brain? Or can they all be reduced to some underlying phenomena uh, presenting at different levels of intensity and valence? So the basic idea here is like imagine you got a couple of sliders in your brain. One is a slider that's the, the valence. Is this positive or negative? Mm -hmm. And then the other slider is the level of arousal. Are you high, high arousal or low arousal? And the, those two sliders positioned at different places actually give you the things you think of as your normal emotions. The names of the emotions are just sort of like categories that we apply based on contextual clues. That's mm -hmm. a possibility. Yeah, I was thinking a little about this yesterday because I was I was working on another episode's uh, notes, and I was listening to a little Jackson Brown. I was uh -huh. playing um, Fountain of Sorrow. Okay, and I had to stop. It's like because I was thinking, is this is this song making me feel good or bad? Is it making me happy or sad? It's like it's but it's neither. You know, it's it's this mix of both. Like it's a kind of a sad, bittersweet song that's beautifully recorded and I have, you know, nostalgia for it, but it's also, you know, it's complicated. Yeah, there are a lot of moments where you can start to wonder if so, this is, I think, sometimes called like the the constructionist or core affect uh, idea of emotions where they're not these discrete programs running in the brain, but they, they're the same thing. They're the same part of the same continuous quantity, and we just like apply categories to different zones on this graph, basically, yeah. uh, and and depending on what the contextual clues are, because uh, one level of high arousal and negative emotion in one state might feel like you know like anger and agitation, and in another state it might be more like sadness, yeah, intense sadness. But obviously, you know, I don't know which of these theories of emotion is the correct one. Uh, but that's another thing that's at play in all these studies. People are working off different theories of emotion when they're trying to study whether emotions can be uh, modulated or caused by facial movements. 
Uh, next big question, is awareness involved? Hmm. If facial feedback does influence our emotions, do you have to be consciously aware of the face you're making or how you're moving your muscles? Like, I feel myself smiling. I know that smiles mean happiness, so I feel happy. Uh, or do these facial movements, if the facial feedback hypothesis is correct, do these facial movements influence our emotions unconsciously through, uh, you know, through feedback uh, mechanisms that happen outside of our awareness? Huh. Well, in my experience, uh, for whatever that's worth, I, I find that being aware of your happiness is one surefire way to potentially bring it down. You know, that's a good point. You know? Yeah. Like, so, I, but th- but then again, I don't know how that would that actually you know re- relates to any of the research here. Well, it's 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 hard to think yourself happy, but it's pretty easy to think yourself sad. Yeah. <laughs> now, one thing we mentioned earlier is like some of those studies are are aimed at trying to show that. The, the effect happens without conscious awareness, like the pin in the mouth study, right? Mm-hmm. If you put a pin between people's teeth and that makes them feel happier, obviously they're not going to be aware of the fact that they're smiling. They've just got a pin in their teeth. Uh, so that for what, and there were studies that showed something like that, I think back in the 1980s. However, that was the, the study that failed replication in recent years. So people tried to do the experiment again, didn't get the same result. That means that either there was something wrong with the initial experiment or with all the replication attempts, or they could both be sound, but arriving at different results because there's some important difference that's not being controlled for there. Uh, so that that's something I, I don't know the answer to yet. I think I saw there might be a study that, was trying to resolve whatever difference was going on hmm. there, but uh, but I, I didn't have time to look into that. Uh, one more big question. Does facial feedback have an effect on affective judgments? So not just how you feel, but what you think about other things, you know, third parties. Uh, what, what do you think about this cup? What do you think about this microphone? I'm sorry that a cup is so often an example that we invoke on uh, in the moment here in <laughs> the studio. It's one of our few props in here. It's true. It's either going to be that or the foam soundproofing board. So, uh, so, but what do you think about these things? Uh, so if our facial expressions modulate our emotions, do they do just that? Or do they also change the ways that we make judgments about these external objects, people, and, and situations? And the authors call this the affective judgments hypothesis. Uh, does frowning make you view another person more negatively? So obviously all these theoretical disagreements make a meta-analysis of the facial feedback hypothesis really difficult because despite how many studies there are now, they're not all testing exactly the same thing. They're not all working from the same theoretical framework. Uh, So the authors had to like code for all these differences in what's being tested in each study as well as lots of other moderators including how the facial feedback was manipulated. For example, you know, the pin in the teeth or just asking people to do a facial pose, or even uh, experimenting with people who have had Botox injections that restrict facial movement. That's Uh, an interesting one, yeah. Uh, And then other moderators like the timing of measurement, uh, the gender, for example. Some earlier research had found that maybe men were more susceptible to body feedback on average than women, uh, and whether subjects were, were aware of being video recorded and things like that. All right, so time for the results. Uh, I would say the top line here is that some facial feedback effects seem to be real, but the effect is not huge. The overall body of research suggests that the effect is real, it is significant, but it's relatively small, and it's variable based on a lot of different uh, things, like on these theoretical disagreements and moderating variables that we mentioned earlier. So just a few key selections from the specifics of the results. Uh, 
One is this question about initiation versus modulation, right? Can facial feedback uh, only influence pre-existing emotions or can it actually create new emotional experiences from a starting neutral state? And the evidence shows it can definitely do both. In fact, contrary to many historical predictions and assumptions, the initiation of emotions through facial posing is pretty well supported by evidence and seems to be pretty easy to demonstrate. So it's not just the modulation of what you're already feeling. You, they've shown a bunch of times now that you can just take people, make them do a facial pose, and it does sort of generate an emotion from out of nowhere. Hmm. However, there is more evidence for some emotions than others. Like, there is evidence of a small facial feedback effect for most emotions, but not for a couple of key ones, surprise and fear. Interesting. So people who make a happy face, the evidence shows, on average, will tend to feel more happy. But if you make a surprised face or a fearful face, there is not yet good evidence that you will feel those two emotions. Though the authors caution this conclusion because they say there aren't a whole lot of studies on the feedback effect for fear and surprise. Somehow I, I can really see how this would be the case for surprise. I don't know how you could simulate surprise just by putting a surprise face on. Surprise seems so much more really dependent on actual facts of your surroundings. Yeah, I wonder if, if part of this might be that they're just, you know, if, if we go back to, you know, what I was talking about with uh, Graziano and his, um, um, you know, monkey A and monkey B uh, mm -hmm. scenario, um, like, is there ever a necessity to to fake surprise? I mean, certainly if there's a surprise birthday party and you knew about it and you're like, oh, yeah, or right. you're— But you're, people suck at that, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we do. Like, when you—I think most of us, if we were asked to fake surprise, we would we would have a hard time doing anything convincing, you know? Like, it's generally the kind of thing where, again, it's a, it's a surprise party that you knew about or you're humoring, like, a child's, um, uh, you know, game uh, you mm -hmm. know, of, of scaring you or something. Whereas faking, um, uh, you know, these other emotions would have, would have much more advantage and are much you know, more a part of the, the, the human emotional deception tool chest. Yeah, I think that's right. Though I just do want to reiterate again their, their caution that this may just be because there are fewer studies yeah. on, on these emotions. And we don't know that in a really strong way. But the, the evidence for those two emotions is not as strong as it is for all the others. Right. Like, I don't know that I've ever been, though, accused of faking fear, you know? <laughs> like, no one's, said, no one's ever written into the show and said, I don't think you were really afraid when you were talking about this particular frightening concept. I think you were faking your fear. I've never thought about this before, but what emotion is most often acted badly in movies? Hmm. What emotion are people the worst at trying to portray in a fictional scenario? Oh man, I've seen them. I've seen them all done poorly, uh, and it can be <laughs> spectacular. In in any case, I mean, we, with fear and surprise, you know, we can certainly think to really affect. Like when it's done well uh, mm -hmm. through a, whatever acting method is employed, like it really sticks in your mind. It's a reason that we. I mean, how many of us right now are thinking of Donald Sutherland uh, from uh, the the, um, uh, in the Invasion of the Body Snatchers uh -huh. film? You know, it's such an iconic cinematic. Uh, you know, moment of just absolute um, fear, right? But a lot of directors actually go out of their way to create real surprises on sets for the actors when they want to get a truly shocked and surprised response. Like I'm thinking of the uh, the scene in Alien where the thing bursts out of uh -huh. uh, John Hurt's chest. Uh, the, you know, the first time the actors didn't know exactly what was going to happen in that scene. I think they, they thought something was going to happen, mm -hmm. but they didn't have all the details. I think an important thing that Ridley Scott was going for there was trying to make sure that they got a real 
look of shock on their faces. Hmm. Maybe because even though they were all great actors, he didn't trust them enough with surprise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are there are a number of different uh, filmmaking stories about that, right? Where where you end up having this uh, rift between the actors and the director because the director. Uh, assumes that they need to pull some sort of stunt to get that kind of emotion out of them. Um, mm. Was it The Exorcist where there were uh, allegations or stories oh, about yeah. him like firing, uh, a, 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 like a firearm being discharged on the set to make all the actors be on edge? Yeah, there are a lot of bad stories about the production of The Exorcist. <laughs> Uh, okay, okay. We, we got to get back to this. So a um, couple more things in, in the results. Is awareness necessary? Do you have to be aware that you're expressing an emotion on your face for the expression to influence your feelings? The results did not demonstrate that you have to be aware, but they also don't disconfirm there might be some role for self-perception in some cases. Okay. Uh, do facial movements influence affective judgments, you know, judging other things? The authors found that this question, unlike the general question of facial feedback, suffered from publication bias. Uh, and so – and that's, of course, when uh, studies confirming an effect are more likely to be published than the same studies if they had disconfirmed the effect. Mm. Uh, and so uh, when that bias was corrected for, the results did not yet indicate strong evidence for facial expressions changing affective judgment. However, the authors caution against abandoning this line of inquiry – uh, because this one could be highly context-dependent. They point out that the, there's some other research in psychology that suggests emotions only change our judgments about external stimuli in some contexts, maybe like when emotion seems relevant to the thing you're judging. Hmm. More research is needed here to invoke a cliché. <laughs> uh, but then, then they also talk about how their findings interact with some competing psychological theories on the nature of emotion like we talked about earlier. Um, you know, th this question of are emotions like happiness and anger and fear discrete programs within the brain or are they contextual categorizations of different variations of intensity and valence with this more basic core affect? And the results of the meta-analysis show that uh, facial feedback can influence not only reports of basic emotions but dimensional reports that would be in line with the theory of emotions more based on core affect uh, so facial feedback doesn't really solve this question. As best I can tell, it could be consistent with either way of looking at what emotions are. Uh, they also found that results even within the same categories were fairly variable, suggesting that there were influences on these effects that are not recorded in the data and that they weren't able to test. And one example they give of what this might be is perhaps facial feedback effects are stronger in populations that are on average more, quote, attentive to their bodily cues, including but not limited to proprioceptive cues from the face. Now, of course, proprioception is our sensation. It's one, we have more than five senses, right? Mm -hmm. It's one of the body senses that lets us know where the parts of our body are. It's how you can know where your hands are even when your eyes are closed. Um, and so it's this part of this proprioceptive sense uh, and, and this could be an influencing factor, but the studies, of course, haven't tried to record or measure this. And I take this to mean that people who have stronger senses of interoception in general, the sensations within the, their own bodies, those people might be more sensitive to feelings created by the movements of the muscles in their face. And they also cite maybe different exclusion criteria on different studies could have influenced why some of the results are so variable. But they say in the end that, quote, the cumulative evidence to date suggests that facial feedback does indeed influence emotional experience, uh, given all the caveats we just talked about. So I, I think that's interesting. So, like, 
what are some takeaways from this? Uh, number one, we don't know yet when and why the effects will be largest. And in general, the effects are real, but kind of small. Though you could see how this knowledge could be applied to some kind of therapeutic uses. I think we probably don't know enough about it to, to use it most effectively that way yet. But say if you are trying to test and see, you know, could I make myself feel better by just making my face smile? Mm-hmm. It's, it's at least one of those things where I think the risks and downsides associated with trying that out are probably extremely low. Right. I mean, especially if you're not, uh, to go, come back to the yoga example, like if one does experiment with smiling during certain poses, like you're not, you're also doing all the yoga. You're doing the, you know, there, there's also the, the experience of, say, uh, you know, working with the teacher, of being in the space. There are all these other factors that are contributing and you're not going to make or break it. Uh, necessarily by engaging in uh, in this uh, smiling exercise. Yeah. Uh, likewise, I should point out though that that there are other things that exercises that one does with your your face that I w- that could possibly play a role here. Mm-hmm. Uh, being, like, for instance, uh, just moving your face around in odd ways or making what is uh, referred to as lion face, where you just make an exaggerated like uh, you know. Uh, childish, cartoonish monster face out of your own face. Uh-huh. And like that can be kind of a way of you know, potentially just like clearing whatever is physically going on with your face that could be exerting this mild influence on your emotional disposition. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there could be like a making monster faces in the mirror therapy kind of thing. Yeah. Like you make your monster faces in the mirror and then there's some kind of change in the emotional centers of the brain caused by these facial muscle movements. Yeah, yeah, like maybe it, it is signaling, uh, I mean, to get back to the lion thing, maybe it is some sort of like dominance and, and um, uh, uh, you know, uh, aggression uh-huh. that is relayed. Or maybe it's simply like your brain is not that familiar with it. Like, do I ever make lion face uh, the rest of the time in my life? Uh, like, I don't think I really do. <laughs> so maybe my I'm just, I don't have like a bunch of, uh, you know, emotional material just like lined up mm-hmm. uh, for that particular facial uh, feature. Yeah. Uh, and so I would emphasize again, like obviously we don't know how effective this could be in the long run. It, like, it, say you were trying to do something really serious, like battle depression or yeah, something. Yeah. We're not necessarily saying this is the fix because, no. again, the effects are small. We don't know exactly how effective it would be at that kind of thing uh, or what ways, what ways you could manipulate the scenario to make it more effective. But, I, like I said, this is something that does seem like a very low-risk kind of thing to try if you are trying to manipulate your own moods and emotions. And certainly much, you know, lower risk than a lot of the things people actually do to try to regulate their emotions, like self-medicating with drugs and alcohol and all that. Right. Yeah. And of course, you know, again, I do want to come back to the, the fact that there are cultural differences in the way that we use smiles and um, and react to smiles. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's always something to keep in mind as well. Like, is it a given culture where smiling is done more, a given culture or even a given individual where smiling when embarrassed when embarrassed is more of a you know a typical feature mm-hmm. like how would that influence any of this yeah i'm sure that could contribute yeah, yeah. and then also uh, thinking about like the full body scenario we were talking about earlier with the um, uh, with the, the the hypothetical apes uh, uh, reacting to each other like if if you're dealing with a smile and it's just you know in some of these experiments and it's just isolated to the face uh is that truly the expression, or is the is this should the smile be part of a like a broader uh, you know uh, physical manifestation? Well, another thing that makes me think of is uh, you know this came up a little bit when we were thinking about the idea of research that used people who had Botox injections yes. in the face mm-hmm. 
uh, to see, you know, if that affected their emotional cognition. This makes me think more generally about the relationship between skeletal muscle in the face and throughout the body and our emotional states and whether there could be relationships there that we don't fully understand yet, but mm -hmm. that how you use your body contributes to your state of mind. Absolutely. But, you know, the great thing about all this is that, uh, is that this is a wonderful area for individual experience and feedback on this episode. Like everybody out there has experience with emotions. And uh, have you ever smiled? <laughs> have you ever smiled? Um, have you ever frowned? Like, I mean, I, you know, we, we've discussed cultural differences and individual differences. So I would I would love to hear some details about about that uh, from folks out there. Um, you know, what are your experiences with being told to smile? What are your experiences with say, uh, being, uh, you know, encouraged to smile during yoga or uh, laughter yoga is a whole other area. You know, we're talking more about laughter than than just smiling alone there. But that's very much a situation where the idea is pretend to laugh until you are laughing. Uh -huh. And I've 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 tried that tried it a few times, and I find that it, it works to like a reasonable degree. Like I don't feel like laughter has possessed me bodily. Like there's some sort of a you know a demon uh, you know, leeching into me. But I do find myself. <laughs> is that what you're looking for? <laughs> well, I don't know. I've. Not that I'm necessarily looking for it, but I, I've seen, I've seen people um, overcome with laughter in scenarios like that. Like mm. basically, when I was uh, in high school, I think I visited a church with a friend where they were doing some form of faith healing. I'm not sure what the terminology is for it, but where an individual would be touched by the um, the, the pastor, mm -hmm. and instead of just simply like you know falling to the floor, being healed of their ailment they would begin laughing hysterically. Mm -hmm. That was the physical manifestation of being touched with, uh, you know, the, the, the Holy Spirit or whatever they, um, the, the description was. Mm -hmm. So I guess I was kind of, I, I could not help but think of that when engaging in laughter yoga. Mm. Uh, and and I, so I just want to drive home that my experience was not um, uh, a situation of being overcome by, uh, you know, out-of-control laughter. But then again, the priming wasn't uh, there for that to be the case either. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it could be a situation uh, where if I were entering into it and people were saying, yeah, we're going to do laughter yoga and you're going to lose control of your body, then perhaps I would be more inclined to, like, to fall into that scenario. Laughter's weird is what I'm saying. <laughs> it is. It is weird. Yeah, it's something we can come back to again. So, uh, yeah, if you have any any uh, tidbits from your life that you would like to share with us, let us know. In the meantime, uh, check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes. And we want to remind you, if you want to support this show, the best thing you can do is tell your friends about it. Tell, uh, you know, share share the episodes with people you know, but also rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. So wherever you get this podcast, throw us some stars, leave a nice comment. It really helps us out. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison, and to our guest producer today, Maya Cole. If you would like to get in touch with us today with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.